A very good morning to all of you once again. If you've been coming for the last month, then you've probably seen me quite a lot. Uh, if you haven't, uh, then can I introduce myself? My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastoral staff here. I'm one of Kenneth's colleagues, and I look after the evening congregation, and I'm here to preach God's word to you today. Uh, if you come in here, you should have gotten a Bible. So I hope you keep that open to Isaiah chapter 6, uh, as well as the Bible. There's an outline, as Kenneth mentioned already, uh, in your bulletins uh, in one of your sheets of paper, and it might help uh, to have that open to follow along as well. And as we begin, as always, uh, we always need God's help to listen to his word, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, you send your son Jesus, the light of the world, into this world. Uh, we thank you for that. We thank you that he's opened our blinded eyes, he's opened our deaf ears. And by your Holy Spirit today, Lord, we pray that you will open our eyes, our ears, our hearts again, that we might receive your word, that we would allow your word to penetrate us to our innermost beings, that we will fall down and worship you, the Holy King, and that we would want to live for you and for your Son, Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Now, a friend confessed last week that although it was only November, she had already put up the Christmas tree, decorations and all. Uh, and I see that we've also done the same. So I think it's safe to say that quite a few of us are looking forward to Christmas. You know, plenty of people are already thinking about presents and food and carols and TV movies and Christmas trees and maybe even mistletoe. Now, of course, as Christians, we immediately say, oh, Christmas isn't really about all those things, but ultimately, it's about Jesus. Uh, now that I've let the cat out of the bag, uh, please still go to the Christmas guest night. But that is surely right, isn't it? After all, we should be looking back and celebrating the events of 2,000 years ago, the climax of human history, when God entered the world in Christ Jesus. But even then, when we think of Jesus at Christmas, the image in our mind is probably that of the baby in the manger, you know, asleep, looking very peaceful with some sort of radiant glow around him. And it doesn't help when a well-known Christmas carol mistakenly proclaims that the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. It's a safe picture. It's tame. It poses no threat to anybody. Now, the prophet Isaiah was looking forward to Christmas. Of course, not in the same way. He's a man in a different place and a different time. In chapter 1, verse 1 of Isaiah, we're told that his ministry stretches across the reigns of four kings of Judah. That's um, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So that would date his ministry from about 740 B.C., to at least 701 B.C., and most probably later. And he lived in Jerusalem, the great city of David, home to the temple of God. But the great city is in decline. It's filled with corruption and oppression and exploitation. That's the charge that God brings against Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 1. They have rebelled against me, God says in Isaiah 1 verse 2. Everybody loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, 
and the widow's cause does not come to them, he says in verse 23. He describes Jerusalem like a person who is sick from head to toe in verses 5 and 6. They are very religious, but what use is this religion if it's all simply for show? And that's the big point of verses 10 to 17. And therefore, God will judge. And that's the dominant note in the opening five chapters of Isaiah. God's vineyard, Israel and Judah, are going to be destroyed, trampled down, made a wasteland. That's chapter 5. And have a look at the last verse of chapter 5. You see, all we have left there is a picture of darkness and distress, of light that is darkened. It's a devastating picture. But into this picture, Isaiah comes, speaking God's word into this situation. And as we cover the terrain of Isaiah 6-11, to we'll discover rays of light in this darkness. Over the coming weeks, we are going to hear about the sign of Emmanuel, of a son on the throne of David, of the righteous branch. Isaiah is looking forward to Christmas. But don't get the wrong idea. This is not going to be how Christmas as we normally think of it. As we look at Christmas, and as we look through Isaiah's eyes, and hear through Isaiah's ears, in today's passage especially, we are going to encounter a God that is far more than simply a baby in a manger. The picture Isaiah paints for us in Isaiah 6-11 is not going to be safe. It's definitely not going to be tame. It might even be dangerous. And so as we begin our journey with Isaiah, let's be willing, prayerfully, to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts that Isaiah's vision of God might be ours too. And firstly, we are to behold the Holy King. Behold the Holy King. Look at Isaiah 6 verse 1 with me. It's page 689. And Isaiah 6 verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. There's Isaiah standing in the temple when his entire vision is entirely filled by God. Seated on the throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple. But let's pause and rewind a little bit. You see, it's so unusual for Isaiah to be so specific about the time. He mentions that it's the year that King Uzziah dies. He doesn't really do this anywhere else. That suggests that he wants us to keep King Uzziah in the back of our minds. Now, Uzziah was one of uh, Israel's better kings, or Judah, sorry, Judah's better kings. And some would even say that he's the best since Solomon. 2 Chronicles 26 gives us the details of his reign. We're told that he is determined to seek God. He strengthens the nations against its enemies. We're told that God helped him. And his fame spread far and wide, just like Solomon. He prospers the nation. But with prosperity comes complacency. We read this in 2 Chronicles 26 verse 16. It's on the screen, so you don't have to turn to it. 
But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now only the priests were allowed to burn incense on the altar. Even the king was not allowed to do so. But perhaps Uzziah thought he was an exception. Perhaps he thought, you know, God's with me, I'm strong, I'm powerful, and I'm sure God wouldn't mind, would he? After all, I'm trying to honor him. But Uzziah didn't really honor God. He was really disobeying him. He lost sight of who this God was, holy and majestic. And so he struck with leprosy. An unclean man, perhaps symbolic of his unclean nation, all the way till death. And it is against this backdrop of an unclean, dead king that Isaiah sees the living, holy king, high and lifted up, seated on his throne. He's so high up, so exalted, so magnified, that it's not actually him that fills the temple, but simply the train of his robe. Isaiah doesn't actually see God literally, for no one can do that and live. What he sees is a vision of God that shouts at him, Behold, your God is so transcendent, so awe-inspiring, so distinct, that you have no words big enough to describe him. You can only talk about his throne and his robes. And the fact that the train of his robes fill the temple shows that his glory is not to be shared with anybody else. There's only one king, and no one is able to stand in his presence. We're meant to feel reverence, wonder, even terror at such a sight. Now, in our society today, where we no longer think so highly of kings and queens, uh, that's a bit hard to imagine, isn't it? But think of something like the Grand Canyon. Uh, imagine being at one of the viewpoints, looking across this vast expanse and the beautiful landscape. And if you look down from one of those viewpoints, you might be staring at depths of real beauty, which are over 1,700 meters deep. You're awestruck and terrified all at once. And that gives you a little sense of what Isaiah is experiencing here. And when Isaiah looks up, he sees the seraphim, verse 2. They are angels, literally burning ones. They're standing around God's throne. And they have three sets of wings. One set to cover their faces, for even the heavenly beings find looking at God directly too much for them. One set to cover their feet, uh, it's virtually impossible to know why for certain, but perhaps it suggests humility on their part, because even their feet are unworthy to touch holy ground. And one set to fly, to act as the messengers of their king and carry out his orders. And their task here is to interpret this incredible vision that Isaiah has. Now often in the Bible, God never just gives a vision or sign on its own, but also explains and interprets it for us. And in verse 3, the seraphim interprets this vision for us by lifting up their voices in praise, calling to one another and saying, 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Now, in our English language, uh, we have certain ways of expressing when something is of the highest degree of a quality. So we say things like fast, faster, fastest, or great, greater, greatest. And that's called a superlative. In Hebrew, the, long, the language that the Old Testament was written in, they express a superlative by repeating it. So, for example, when the Babylonians came to ransack the temple in Jerusalem in 2 Kings 25, we are told that they find in the temple pure gold. But in the Hebrew, it literally says, go, go. And here, the angels don't just say holy. And they don't just say holy, holy either. They say three times, holy, holy, holy. The only time in the Old Testament when a word is repeated three times. This isn't just a superlative. It's a super superlative. It's, it's as if I couldn't just say, he's the best. But I had to say, he's the bestest. And then I had to bow and italicize and underline it all at the same time. That's how holy God is. That's the focus of this entire vision. That's the characteristic of God that comes out most clearly. What is God like? Holy, holy, holy. What does that mean? It means fundamentally to be separate, to be set apart. It's not just about moral purity, which is what most people think when they hear the word holy. It includes that, certainly. But more than that, it's about transcendence. To put it another way, God is in a class all by himself. It's the essence of who he is. It's why he is called holy more times than any other attribute in the Old Testament. It's why the prophet Amos can talk about God swearing by his holiness. Holy, holy, holy. So it's good to stop here and ponder. Is this how we see God? We know God is love. We know God is merciful. We know God is kind. And all that is wonderfully true. But do we know God as holy as someone who is also not at all like us? Do we need to recover a sense of the holiness of God? The theologian David Wells once wrote this. One of the marks of our time is that God is now weightless. He has become unimportant to us. He is less interesting than TV, less authoritative than our appetite for affluence and influence. His judgment is less inspiring than the evening news, and his truth is less compelling than the evening ads. And if we begin to find that the God we worship is like that, then maybe we're not worshipping the God of Isaiah. Consider the words of the psalmist in Psalm 36 on the screen. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes 
that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The unbeliever has no fear of God because he thinks he can get away with it. He does not behold God as the holy king. But the believer does. He knows God's glory is his holiness revealed and is to be seen everywhere on this earth. He knows that even as God is on his side, he has to work out his faith. So he does not take his salvation for granted or play fast and loose with his, with his obedience. The prospect of disobedience leaves him trembling. And that leads us to our second point. Isaiah's only response upon seeing the Holy King is, Woe is me! I am unclean. Woe is me! I am unclean. Look at verses 4 and 5. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Heaven touches us. The divine meets the profane. The holy encounters the unholy. Except they can't coexist. The shaking and the smoke are all there to say, don't come near. Because sinful humanity cannot come face to face with a holy God. And that's when Isaiah, with growing horror, realizes that he is in huge trouble. Woe is me, for I am lost. Notice what caused him to realize this. It was not the sight of his own sin. It was not the sight of society collapsing around him. It was the sight of the holy, holy, holy king seated and exalted on his throne. In response to the declaration of the angels in saying who, the, who this God is, all he can do is cry out, Unclean! I am a man of unclean lips. It's the cry that he shares in common with King Uzziah. Notice how he doesn't try to make any excuses for himself. He personalizes everything. Woe is me! I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king. Earlier in chapter 5, he declares woes on all kinds of people, the evil, the corrupt, the liars, the lazy. But now he declares woes on himself. He knows that he is just as sinful as they are. He takes responsibility. He acknowledges his unclean lips. So he cries out in total despair because he knows that he is a dead man walking. We naturally measure ourselves against others, don't we? Oh, he's so unspiritual. He never comes to any Christian activities. Woe is him. She, she's so proud. She never wants to listen to any advice. Woe is her. He, he's so untrustworthy. He never does the job he's given. Woe is him. But when we measure ourselves against God, we find that we can no longer declare woes 
on others. It has to be, woe is me. But now comes the turning point of this vision. Verses 6 and 7. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he has taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Heaven touches earth. The divine needs the profane. And the angel flies to Isaiah with a burning coal from the altar and touches his unclean lips, taking away his guilt and atoning for his sin. The burning coal from the altar is meant to bring to our minds the entire sacrificial system that God has established in the temple to deal with the sins of his people. It's a visual aid. Isaiah is cleansed and without any effort on his own. Notice how passive he is throughout. He does not plead for mercy. He does not try to bargain with God. He probably thought his case completely hopeless. But out of that smoke comes not judgment, but redemption. It's the Holy King who takes the initiative. It's the Holy King who provides his atonement. It's the Holy King who cleanses him. The comedian Shel Silverstein has written a poem called The Dirtiest Man in the World. Uh, let me just read a few lines to you. I can't see my shirt, it's so covered with dirt, and my ears have enough to grow flowers. I'm musty and dusty and patchy and scratchy and mangy and covered with mold. If you look down my throat with a flashlight, you'll note that my insides are covered with rust. And I joke with the bats and have intimate chats with the cooties that who crawl in my hair. Something tells me that you wouldn't want to spend an evening with such a person. But that's how dirty we are spiritually. Think of every time you had a bad thought this past week. Of every time you put yourself first. Of every time you made an unkind comment, whether fair or not. That's all the dirt and rust and mud that clothes you and I. That's how unlovely you and I are. And yet God does not run a million miles from us. Instead, he provides the spiritual soap and towel that we so desperately need. He tenderly stretches his arm of salvation to us. Do you see? Isaiah 6 is looking forward to Christmas. As God deals with the prophet's sin, so he will one day deal with the sin of all humanity. And John tells us the same in this amazing statement from John chapter 12, verse 41. John says this, Isaiah said these things because he saw his, that Jesus, glory and spoke of him. Isaiah saw Jesus, John says. How can that be? Well, as Isaiah beholds the Holy King, as he sees his... Uh, he sees his glory. And Jesus, John makes clear, is God's glory. John chapter 1 verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
So as Isaiah sees the glory of the Holy King, he is also getting a glimpse of the future. A future where God's glory is ultimately made known through Jesus Christ. Jesus, God's glory, filled with grace and truth. Jesus, God's glory, not just a baby in a manger, but the Christ, the chosen King, whose highest aim is to glorify His Father. And He glorifies the Father when He is lifted up, lifted up on the cross. And if you confess and say, I want Him to be my Savior, I want Him to be my Lord, then your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Christianity is never about us going to God first. It's always about God coming to us first. You don't have to try to earn your way to God. You don't have to keep beating yourself up. You don't have to speculate about whether you've got a place in heaven or not. Instead, behold the Holy King. Acknowledge you are dead in your sins and God will make you live again by grace through faith as you put your trust in Jesus. And if you're not a Christian here today, then can I invite you to do just that? Because that's what Christmas is really all about. And for those of us who are Christians, well, every time we're convicted afresh of our sins, every time we remember our dirty clothes, Every time we sincerely say, woe is me, well, we really remember the greatest Christmas gift of all. That we who were once unholy and unfit for God's presence are, are now made fit and revel in the King's presence. Christians who have gone long and far in their walk with Jesus all have this in common. They know their sinfulness intensely. They know God's holiness deeply. They feel that gap each and every day. But they know Jesus who bridges that gap. And that's why they love him all the more and seek to love others all the time. But that's not the end of Isaiah 6. For now Isaiah is commanded to go, for the king has spoken. Go, the king has spoken. That's our third point for today, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. The Holy King is in his meeting room, wondering who to send on the mission. And Isaiah, in a move that would change his life, steps forward. He's seen the holiness of the king. He's experienced the grace of the king. And now he finds that he wants to do the will of the king. He's a transformed man. That's the mark of true conversion, isn't it? Not merely in some emotional high or dramatic experience, but in a readiness to do what God wants. How can we keep going on in ministry, in serving God and each other? Well, it's when we have such a compelling vision of God's grace but we understand that though He is holy and we are sinful, and yet we have been purified and forgiven. Now that will give you the feel you need for the long and difficult journey ahead. And Isaiah has a long and difficult journey ahead. God surprises him in verses 9 and 10. 
verse 9. And God said, Go and say to these people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of these people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. He has to preach, and yet no one will listen. He has to proclaim, and yet no one will understand. He can plead his heart out, but his hearers will never come to repentance. In fact, their hearts will actually be hardened by the message. It's a bit like me listening to my relatives speaking in Fuchao. You know, I can hear the loud and passionate tones of the dialect, uh, but I have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. And sooner or later, I don't even bother. Uh, it simply becomes background noise. That's what happens. It's not that Isaiah preached a complicated and obscure message. No, the shocking commission that God has given his prophet is for him to preach and preach until they reach the point of no return. Until their lack of response is clear. That, that is actually an aspect of God's judgment on them. It's exposing them for who they really are. He's being sent, knowing full well that he is going to get a negative result. And perhaps an even bigger surprise is that Jesus and Paul both quote verse 10 in describing their ministries. It's there in John 12 and Acts 28. They know that the gospel they bring will have a divisive effect. Yes, it will save those who respond to it and come to Jesus. But it will also judge those who reject it and run away from Jesus. You know, when you write constantly, uh, you eventually develop a caloose on your middle finger, don't you? Yeah. Uh, it's become hardened from repeated exposure. And so for those who reject Jesus constantly, their hearts become hardened from repeated exposure. The good news that Jesus lived, died, and rose again, the good news that we believe in, the good news that we share, well, it will not always be accepted by all. That's the reality. Isaiah is not being called to a successful ministry. He's being called to a faithful one. And so are we. So the next time people don't respond the way that you want them to, the next time they run the other way, even though you pleaded with them to come back to God, the next time they drop out and don't prove reliable, well, hang on in there. It's faithful and steady ministry that God is looking for not a 100% success rate. Well, no wonder Isaiah cries out, verse 11, How long, O Lord? He accepts his mission, but he recognizes how dreadful it is. And the Lord answers, verse 11, And God said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitants, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Shortly after this vision, the northern kingdom falls to Assyria, and its people are forced to leave the land. And Judah, the southern kingdom, will similarly fall a century later to Babylon. You know, imagine taking a trip around Subang Jaya and Pataling Jaya, Monkiara, Brickfields, Cheras, and Gajang, and seeing only abandoned condos and office lots. Uh, permanently closed restaurants 
and shopping malls. Uh, rubbish piling up. Well, that's sort of like the situation here. But there's theological significance as well. God's people are removed from God's land and his blessing. This is a disaster brought about by God himself. But like the single stump left after a forest fire has happened, so there will be those who will survive. Verse 13. And though a tent remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebint or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. God is going to keep a people for himself. In judgment, there's hope. Just as a tree stump is, about, is able to bring forth new life, so God is going to bring forth new life from his people. And that's why the holy seed is its stump. The holy seed refers to the future people of God who remain faithful to God. They are the ones out of which new life will grow. That's not all it is though. Isaiah will come back to this image in chapter 11 and I'll leave it for when we get there. So as we wrap up, let's end on a note of hope. This looks like the end, but it really is only the beginning. There's exile, but a stump remains. And that's so often how God works, doesn't he? He moves in at the very moment when it looks like all is lost. That's what he loves to do, redeem sinful human beings and transform them. But that only happens when you and I say, Woe is me, for I am lost. And we can only begin to do that when we truly behold the Holy King. When we don't import our own ideas of what God is like, but let him confront us as he truly is. As long as we think that we can make our own way in life with only just a little bit of help from God from time to time, well then we haven't truly seen God. He's not on his throne. But when we begin to sense that God is not like us mere creatures, when we begin to know him as a consuming fire, and when we begin to look for, uh, look into the face of his son, the Lord Jesus, full of grace and truth, then you and I can never be the same. Smack one can never be the same. We will bow before his throne. Let's behold the Holy King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in Isaiah 6, we see a glimpse of who you truly are. The King. Holy. Glorious, seated on your throne, high and lifted up. And Father, please let that be our vision too. Help us to seek to exalt you day after day in our lives, never to take you for granted. And indeed, never to take your son Jesus for granted. But we pray that we will be like Isaiah. That having seen and experienced your grace, that we will be transformed and that we want to do your will in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.